that's one of the cool things about tattooing is you're signing up for pain and you're walking away with something beautiful from that suffering. And I think that's a really a cool metaphor for the experience. I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is Jeremiah Griswold. Jeremiah is a tattoo artist and the owner of White Whale Tattoo in Cincinnati. Set aside any conceptions you may have about the typical tattoo parlor. White Whale is a beautiful, pristine space where a talented team of visual artists creates stunning work for a dedicated clientele. It's far more high-end salon than sleazy late-night ink den. That vibe is 100% due to Jeremiah's approach, the philosophical and spiritual impetus behind his visual art. As you'll hear, Jeremiah is a thoughtful guy who brings a great deal of intention to everything he does, from learning the art of tattooing and starting a business to taking painting courses from an Italian master. His story and the story of White Whale Tattoo goes far beyond Cincinnati's Walnut Hills neighborhood, including beginnings in a gang prison in Guatemala. You're just going to have to stick around to hear him tell the full tale. Jeremiah and I met at the beautiful Carrican Spirits Distillery in Fairfax, Cincinnati, a pretty new craft distillery specializing in spirits, hard sodas, and craft cocktails. We each enjoyed a flight of Carrican's spirits. I had the Aura Vanilla Bean and Orange Peel Gin, the Sugar, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a sugar cane and molasses rum, their Press Apple Brandy, and my favorite, the amazing Shifu, a Chinese spirit distilled from sorghum, rice, and barley. You can visit Visit thedistillerpodcast.com for more information on Carrican and photos of our time there. And with that, let's jump right into my conversation with White Whale Tattoo owner and tattoo artist Jeremiah Griswold on The Distiller. First of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank Great. you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to have on your show. I uh, have you on the show. I'm excited. I know you. I know some of what you do. I know mm. some of your philosophy behind what you do. I'm just as interested to get into sort of the mechanics of how you do what you do as I am to hear sure, about yeah. your approach to it. So, so why don't we start with you just telling people what you do and however you phrase it when you get asked that question on the street. Okay, cool. Well, first, truly, it is an honor to be a part of this. I really love what you're doing. Thanks, um, I love the distiller, so honor to be a part of it. Thank you. Um, what I'm doing, that's... That's a really tough question. So I'm a, I'm a tattoo artist by profession. Um, I own and operate White Whale Tattoo uh, with my wife, Becky, and uh, which is a little bit of a lifelong dream of mine mm -hmm. to uh, have my own art studio. Uh, it started as my own private studio and has very quickly grown to include seven artists. Um, so essentially what I'm doing is creating custom designs for people, tattooing them. Um, preferably, in a lot of cases, they are interpretations of literary passages. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that's in some ways what I do, I think. Um, so I could say more about that yeah, at some we'll, point. There's, there's a lot more to get into because I know there's a whole philosophical backing and then yeah. the role that uh, you know South America plays mm -hmm. in all of that. I kind of want to start first by just asking you, at what point, and you said it was a lifelong dream, when is your first memory of being aware of tattooing, period, and or of tattooing as an art, as something that you were intrigued by? Yeah, so I, one of my first memories in general is of my mother drawing, a por drawing portraits, mm -hmm. and uh, she was not... Um, paid to do this. It was just something she enjoyed doing. So she would sit around and draw and they were these beautiful portraits. And I think I remember, I remember that uh, when I was really young, I was probably like three or four seeing these, these beautiful portraits and just almost thinking, you know, at that age, trying to imagine like where you are developmentally, but um, just thinking, well, that's just something you can do. Um, so uh, I think part of being an artist was just something that was almost a fabric of of who I was and what I thought I was capable of. And I remember um, when I was about eight, I went to a, an artist friend, had me and uh, another friend over, and he put up a, a portrait that he had drawn and, uh, and asked us both to copy it. <laughs> and, um, and I did. And I remember him, like, his reaction, he was pretty astounded. Um, 
and and then the other person who was with me like wasn't you know like so <laughs> accurate uh-huh. and I think that person was a little upset with me um, but so I don't know I was just like no one ever told me I couldn't do it and mm-hmm. so it was just like this is just something you do um, eventually you know I really got into punk rock aesthetic and culture uh, so tattoos was kind of part of that um, so I was I was raised pretty like religious and pretty conservative and I was not allowed to get a tattoo mm-hmm. so I had my appointment set up on my 18th birthday for like a year <laughs> I love it. to get my first because I'm, I'm an adult now I'm going to do what I want yeah uh, and of course there was like a religious tattoo so they weren't too mad at me you sure, know sure um but yeah, so I, I think I've always been interested in art specifically. Tattooing, I didn't really know I wanted to be a tattoo artist, I think, and so I, I got that tattoo and, uh, and just started building relationships with tattoo artists. And I think that for me felt like a bit of a rite of passage, you know? And so that was just really powerful for me. Um, so yeah. And you, my understanding of, of, your history is that your interest in art wasn't just visual art. Like you've got a, a degree in literature from UC. Mm-hmm. Um, you were interested in the written word, in the spoken word, in yeah. tattooing. How did that develop in you as a kid and how did it end up mm. sort of with the visual arts taking precedence? Although I think, again, it's not as though that that's at the exclusion of of writing. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there was a lot of pressure that um, almost a belief that the only legitimate work you could do as a very, you know, religious person was working in a church. Hmm. Uh, And so I took that path. You know, I think maybe it's because I'm an oldest child or just this desire to like be good or to get a blessing, I think, you Hmm. know, from parents or authority figures. Um, I kind of followed that path. And I remember at one point telling telling a mentor I wanted to be an artist and that well-meaning mentor said, well, that's fine, but you're going to starve your whole life. So you should think about something else. So Mm. I did the pastoral thing for a while. Um, As I was figuring out my own spirituality, I was finding that I didn't really fit in with the congregation I was, I was working in at the time. Um, So at that point, I, um, that's when I decided to start studying literature. So I can't be an artist. This pastor thing is not working out for me. Um, but I could I could teach English and maybe write, you know, because right. I like that. That's too. a respectable job that's still connected to the arts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's kind of the beginning of that path. Yeah. And describe, if you will, a little bit like how does that how does that play out? How old were you? Is this in high school when you sort of or, or approaching college? Yeah, so I was um, I was pretty young when I got married, and that's when I was working in the church. Mm-hmm. I think I was about twenty four when I left the church. Um, and I was, uh, I finished my lit degree before I left the church. So young twenties studying literature, um, when I kind of hit a wall with the pastoral thing and was, uh, trying to figure out, I think what, what to do next, I really felt strongly in my spirit. Like I needed some time off. (laughs) Um, so I create, I wanted to have a year, um, and it wasn't feasible at the time for a number of reasons, but. Uh, created six months space where I sold my house and moved my young family to Guatemala mm-hmm. and uh, tried to figure out the next step. Why Guatemala? So Guatemala, I had a, right out of high school, I lived in Mexico in Monterrey uh, working in an orphanage there. Mm-hmm. And I really fell in love with the culture. Um, the connections there were part of that whole uh, religious world that I was trying to figure out. And so I wanted to try something new. Um, and I had met some friends who were doing some really interesting work down there. Um, for me, I was unpacking a lot of uh, what I would call baggage around the idea of mission and how so much of it uh, is can, or can be colonialistic or mm-hmm. paternalistic. Uh, and I had heard of some folks who were trying to do the opposite. They were trying to empower um, indigenous leaders to tra- change their own communities rather than create like a codependent program. Mm. Um, where it's like the great white savior comes in and saves everything. Yep. It was more like, how can I show up and ask questions and, and you know, ask how we can help out. Cool. So, yeah. And so you moved down there, you had relationships there, or was it sort mm-hmm. of a, 
you know, great leap of faith, so to speak, since that's what we're talking about. Yeah, some other friends of mine had lived there, so I had visited them once, okay. saw how beautiful the country was, and then made some other connections through that uh, who, were, who was doing this work. So okay. I would, it gave me the opportunity to volunteer like a couple days a week mm-hmm. in some of the uh, organizations that they were working with, and then just some time to explore the country. So Guatemala is the size of Ohio, and it, you know it has Caribbean and Pacific and jungle and desert, and it's just beautiful. So every weekend I was just exploring the country and uh, and taking in that beauty. Cool. And then did that is that connected to the beginning of you starting to to tattoo? Uh, so what happened with that was right before I left for Guatemala. Again, I wanted to kind of mark this occasion in my in my personal narrative. And uh, I had been part of, a, of an organization and a community, St. Elizabeth's mm-hmm. in, in Norwood. And uh, St. Elizabeth was the patron saint of gypsies and homeless people. So my grandmother was a Romani gypsy. And, uh, and at the time, we sold our house and had no clue where we would live in Guatemala. So it felt appropriate. And I, I hit it off really well with this one of the most fantastic tattoo artists in Cincinnati. So after I got the tattoo, I get down there, and one of the things I'm doing is volunteering in gang prisons. Hmm. Um, so guys who were covertly trying to leave the gang if they left prison needed to cover up their gang tattoos. So uh, we brought Craig down. I was helping Craig design these um, these cover-up tattoos. Mm-hmm. And we had been talking a little bit already about what does it take to get into the tattoo industry. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, my apprenticeship started there by helping him cover up these gang tattoos. Interesting. What a crazy environment to be yeah. thrown into. I mean, on the other hand, I guess, what a, an amazing opportunity to start tattooing with a fairly infinite number of canvases, yeah. get a ton of work and have them all... I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that covering up gang tattoos is is not something where quality is involved, but I think it's a it's a utilitarian form of tattooing where it's just as much about protecting these guys as it is creating something mm. beautiful. It seems Absolutely. like that might be a great way to learn a great yeah. first exposure. Yeah, it really was. I think having grown up in a world where there's lots of talk of salvation, you know, and what does that mean? And a lot of times that is some like vague sense of belief system. To actually see someone' life be saved hmm. by their tattoo was really wow. interesting to me. So yeah. taking taking a mark that they were now ashamed of or they felt like was a part of their old identity mm-hmm. and covering up with something more beautiful that is in many ways setting them free and allowing them to reintegrate into society, uh, that was extremely powerful for me. Right on. Describe that experience a little bit because I'm just interested in you're going into a prison in Guatemala. You're dealing with gang members. Yeah. I mean, we can we can pass over that, but like let's <laughs> let's actually talk about that for a second. That's sure. an intense situation for a fairly young guy. Yeah. Uh, was were you hesitant? Were who were you working with? How did you get in there? What's the what's the initial sense of your own safety? And then how does that translate over time into actually developing relationships yeah. with these guys through this intimate process? Mm-hmm. The so some of the the gentlemen who were they would call themselves a chaplain. Uh, most of them were actually former gang members that we that we were working with. So um, they were going into the prisons, uh, advocating for them because the prison conditions were pretty rough. The guards would not go inside of these cells. So mm. we walk up, they open the door, they let us in and they lock us in. Oh, wow. And, uh, and it was extremely intimidating at first, you know, and, and all of a sudden guys start coming out of their rooms and they're just covered in tattoos. Some of them, you know, with pretty dark uh, tattoos on their face. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was pretty intimidating. But I could tell immediately just how thrilled they were to see the chaplains. Mm. Uh, and I think they were, you know, not every day do they get a North American white boy walking in, you know, to visit. So um, it was pretty cool. And what was awesome about it is on this, my first occasion, we were throwing a birthday party for someone and we were also bringing them art supplies. Okay. So they were extra excited, right. just like n- most of these guys aren't, no one's visiting them in yeah. prison. So. Um, they were really stoked uh, to have us there. And how uh, that first visit, like how many tattoos did you do in what sort of a period of time? 
so the, what I started doing while I actually worked there, initially, a lot of the guys, again, I was just asking what would be helpful. Um, and a lot of them wanted to learn English. So, mm -hmm. you know, with that was a good match for me with, with a lit degree in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, so we started teaching English and doing that. And I was, so I did that for a couple months before Craig came down to join us and, okay. uh, and started tattooing. Cool, cool. And the cover-ups, I mean, are you just, are you blacking stuff out or are you actually asking them and doing more creative designs? Yeah, so for the initial ones, um, a lot of them, believe it or not, wanted religious imagery. Mm -hmm. um, and one of, the, one of the only reasons you can leave a gang or a particular gang in Guatemala was for religious reasons. So the gang will follow up with you. And if you're not like living wow. that lifestyle, uh -huh. it's not uncommon for someone to be killed even inside of a church. So a lot of the churches want nothing to do with uh, gang work. Um, so yeah, so in these situations, they wanted religious imagery. imagery. Um, we go back now every year with our team and, and do more cover-up work. And some, there are some circumstances where there's really nothing to do but kind of black it out. But that's right. kind of in vogue right now. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it works out really well. That heavy, dark work. I think we're about to be served some drinks. That's a perfect... Lovely. No, no, no. It's perfect timing. Thank you, Mel. Uh, thank you. So Beautiful. All thank right. You. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So we've got uh, a few selections from Karakin's spirits list here. And we will, uh, on the website, if you're listening to this, we'll link to Karakin to the Facebook page and to the website. Um, I have the Aura, the Sugar, the Shifu, which is the one I'm most interested in, and then their Apple Brandy. So we're mm -hmm. going to be uh, sipping as we talk yeah. here. So cheers. Cheers. So was this... Nice. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Oh, I'm enjoying this more and more every, yeah, every right. second. Um, so at what point does this, does this change from you're interested in tattooing, you're in Guatemala taking a six-month break, mm -hmm. Craig comes down, you guys are working on this thing to an official apprenticeship, and this is a direction that you're headed with your life. Hmm. So I think that became um, pretty clear, pretty obvious to me. Um, one of the reasons, one of the things I was working on uh, when I was in Guatemala was um, almost like a book on the idea of rhythms. And there was like an acronym hmm. there, and it was just like... Uh, I think it was rituals, holidays, years, traditions, hours, meals, and sleep or Sabbath. Mm. Because I, I had reached a point in my life where I really felt like I didn't have a lot of those things. I was burnt out. Um, when I quit the church, I was like losing large chunks of hair in the shower. And I, it was my body like saying, hey, like wake up. You, know, you can't keep doing this. Yeah. Um, so some of the time I was just researching and writing, but really what I was finding to be the most restorative of all was to just put on some music and to draw. Mm -hmm. um, and so when Craig and I began talking about the possibility of an apprenticeship, he's like, hey, I'd love to see some more of your artwork. And here specifically are things that work well with tattooing. So I spent a, a good chunk of my time in Guatemala just drawing. Um, and I found life that I hadn't had in a very long time, like mm. uh, going back to being a little kid and playing baseball or like riding my bike or something. Rediscovering that old, that old feeling of yeah. just sitting down and making art. Yeah, and I think for me, um, I think before you've talked about the Enneagram on the mm -hmm. distiller and discovering that I was a type one. Mm -hmm. um, so being a perfectionist uh, is a big part of my story. Um, so finding something that was a, a new challenge, I think, that I could begin to, to begin to master was was humbling. Mm -hmm. But there's something really fun about that beginner's mind where you, you're submitting yourself to this new thing and like starting at the beginning, and there's just the like challenge of it is so fun for me. Yeah. Um, so I think that's when I got really hungry um, to pursue tattooing and, and just art in general. Yeah. Interesting. Visual art. It's, I think you and I are, are similar and we've talked about this a little bit in the past. It's like, it's one thing to move out of a belief system either into another or into sort of open space. I feel like it's mm. another to do that when that belief system really was yeah. your entire focus. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, uh, one of the things we have in common is that when we were in a Christian belief system, we were not just this is who I am and this is what I believe, but I want to help other people understand. Mm -hmm. I want to pastor, I want to lead, mm -hmm. I want to teach people. Mm -hmm. And figuring out what those rhythms are yeah. when so much of what your life was was defined by this belief system and, and what you compared yourself to, it can be challenging yeah. to figure out how to support rhythms and how to support healthy behaviors mm. when you don't have an external standard against to judge them. So it's interesting that like throwing yourself into art mm. um, as a way to sort of reestablish connection to something yeah. makes a lot of sense. And the structure of at least what I understand of your art and certainly of, of mm -hmm. tattooing makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think there's a, a you know, the, the idea of the Greco-Roman idea of like body, mind and soul. Uh, it was becoming pretty clear to me, especially studying literature. Um, that I was spending a lot of time in my mind. So uh, whether it's, you know, literature or the belief system and in, in the art of like creating a, a sermon or a teaching, um, everything was kind of in my head. Uh, so tattooing and, and visual art was a way to get more into my hands and get out of my head a little bit. Mm. Um, at the same time, you know, like I said, I was losing some hair in the shower. Yeah. And not much, when I got back from Guatemala, I had another body where my body was like, hey, you're not, you're still not getting this here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I learned from the Enneagram, I was a type one, which is a gut type. And most of my life I had been ignoring my gut. And uh, there, there were some pretty, I mean, pretty major job and relationship things that my gut was saying, don't do this. Mm -hmm. And I did anyway, because again, I wanted to please that mentor or that yep. authority figure. So uh, I'm in New York. I moved back to Guatemala. I'm in New York City with my family. I'm on top, top of the Empire State Building when I feel like my colon, uh, what, what happened was my colon perforated. And oh, I wow. thought that it was like uh, my appendix burst. Yeah. And, uh, but then it kind of went away and uh, I have a pretty high pain tolerance. So I just go back to the hotel <laughs> and I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I think I'm dying, right? So I go to the hotel to the hospital they do x-rays and they're like yes we're operating immediately wow and so my gut like literally perforated like and it's like i was gonna die because and i was more than i think i'd ever been like so stressed out mm -hmm. um and burnt out mm -hmm. and i hold that any stress or tension i hold in my gut i can feel it um so I'm really learning to just listen to my gut or what Myers-Briggs would call int intuition. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of test off the charts intuitive. Mm -hmm. And now it's like I know better than to ignore my gut, you know. Those signals you learn to pay, pay attention to as yeah. time goes on. Yeah. So I want to talk about a little bit about um, in several interviews on the podcast, we've talked about the idea of apprenticeship. Apprenticeship used to be the way pretty much everybody learned yeah. everything. Yeah. Now there are a few trades and a few skills where that still exists in a, in a structured way, but it really is dying out as a practice. Mm -hmm. And I hear people, I talk to people in management consulting meetings and things like that about mentorship and about seeking out mentors. Mm -hmm. Describe um, when you and Craig take on this, this apprenticeship, mm -hmm. what's structured about the relationship and what's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's the understanding? Was it something that you guys defined or was it more of a let's flesh it out as it goes? Yeah, so tattooing, I had a very, uh, what you would call a traditional apprenticeship, uh, which simply means that um, I was, I built my first machine from scratch and like I, the coils I wrapped in Guatemala currency. So it would remind me of this connection wow. and why, why I got into this. But welding needles to a needle bar. Uh, I mean, it was really uh, pretty rigorous. Yeah. And, Craig let me know that it would take up to a year for some people, sometimes longer, before you would ever even actually tattoo skin. Mm -hmm. um, because you're, you're learning the ins and outs, the intricacies, the cross-contamination, just all of the things that are involved, but also being able to demonstrate. And what was a true gift of my apprenticeship was I was not allowed to touch skin until I demonstrated mastery over line work. Mm -hmm. um, and doing that with, you know, like a, loading your, a marker into your tattoo machine and drawing and designing art that way. Um, so there were days when I was really frustrated where I just wanted to, 
to go for it and I felt like I was good enough, but I, I had to master it first and, uh, and I really appreciate that. So one day, about six months into my apprenticeship, I come in and Craig says, you're going to do your first tattoo today. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm like, really? On, on who? And he said, on me. Oh, wow. So that was just super intimidating to have this, you know, master of his craft and I'm tattooing that person. Uh, it makes me think of like some scenes from Kill Bill, right? Like, yeah, uh, super, super intense. Well, there's some significant ritual to that. I mean, it's the, you know, it's the, forgive the intentional pun. There's some skin in the game. Yeah for the mentor, you know, for the trainer, that he has to actually believe that you know what you're doing because you're gonna, you're gonna make marks on him. Yeah, absolutely. There's something beautiful about that in terms of the discussion of the whole, of the whole apprenticeship. Yeah, so this tattoo that would now take me five minutes took about an hour, you know? And it was, uh, it was one of the most, I think, intense experiences I'd, I'd had up to that point. Hmm. Um, but, you know, when I started getting my head around it, uh, it was just a lot of fun. And it was so meaningful um, that I just, the minute I was finished, I was hungry to do another one. So. Wow. So what, what is functionally different? Like, cast your mind back to 99% of the people that are going to hear this have never and will never tattoo anybody. Sure. Don't know, maybe have received a tattoo, don't functionally know how a tattoo works. So what is the difference between drawing something on paper and the first time that you're putting the same figure on ink on someone's body? Sure, yeah. Well, with tattooing, usually you get one shot. I mean, yeah. a cover-up is possible, but it's not fun and it's not uh, ideal. Uh -huh. So you can't mess up. It's a game of perfection. You can't paint over, mm -hmm. uh, typically, if you mess it up. Um, so that already is, is in your head as you're approaching it. Um, it's very easy to scar someone or to blow out your lines, which just means that if you're going a little too deep or you're running your machine a little too fast, mm -hmm. um, you can oversaturate the skin and it, the tattoo Bleeds. fuzzes out. And yeah. You see some, you know, some tattoos that just kind of look like blobs that are down the road. And it's usually this matter of um, a blowout or mm -hmm. oversaturation. So there's so many things that you're thinking of as you're applying it. Um, you don't want to, like, I don't enjoy hurting people, <laughs> you know, so the, you but have to get past that, like yeah. I'm inflicting a little bit of pain. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of the cool things about tattooing is you're signing up for pain yeah. and you're walking away with something beautiful from that suffering. And I think that's a really, a cool metaphor for the experience. Yeah, absolutely. The closest analog that I have, which I'm not sure if it compares at all, is I, I worked as a, a welder for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And I know that with, and I only compare it because it's this process of laying a material into another material mm, mm -hmm. in a precise way. Mm -hmm. And it's also not like drawing on paper in that there is, um, it's sort of like driving a boat. You know, like you're, you're, mm. you're stopping before you get to the place where you want the material to stop. Yeah. You're anticipating where things are gonna flow into spaces where you're not precisely putting them sure yeah. and in my mind I sort of assume that potentially tattooing is a little bit like that where you're directing this material into sort of a variable form mm -hmm. that you don't have full control over but expecting it to do a very precise thing yeah that you want to it absolutely and now I'm beginning to understand kind of the the metaphysical aspects of it where there is a real transfer of energy between two people and um, I found that a lot of times I have people almost meditate on the experience because when you, when folks come in and they're really excited to get tattooed and they're like, I love getting tattooed, you know, mm -hmm. um, their tattoos heal better Interesting. as opposed to the person who's like, oh man, they're like, I don't really want to do this, but I want this tattoo and they're <laughs> fighting it off and the body uh -huh. is literally like fighting oh, the tattoo wow. and pushing it out. Um, so now we help people really relax into that experience and it um, really is almost like, hopefully like going to see a shaman and being led through this ritual um something really cool happens i think when when that's understood and that to me that seems to relate to your practice now i have full disclosure one tattoo and it was done by you yeah. so i don't have other other experience with other places uh, certainly we know the the historical narrative of the tattoo parlor mm -hmm. at least in the united states is the cd middle of the night, you're yeah. probably drunk, it was probably a bad idea, yeah. you're probably, it's probably done by, 
you know, there's all these mm-hmm. there's all these things. That is the opposite of white whale. Let me first say for people that are listening, um, if you're listening to this and you're you're in a place where you can go to a computer right now, go to whitewhaletattoo.com mm-hmm. and check out this space because the salon and it is a it is a salon. It mm-hmm. is yeah. um, it's not a seedy tattoo parlor. It's not a place where all the flashes on the walls. It is a beautiful, welcoming, pristine. Artistic and creative space that you guys have created. Thank you. Um, it's sort of high contrast uh, in terms of the physical space, which relates to that most of the work that you do is is black work, is single line. You know, it's mm-hmm. the the aesthetic of your tattoo work is reflected in your space. Mm. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, it's it is a beautiful space, but I sort of want to clear up any perceptions that somebody may have about what we're talking about. <laughs> what we're talking about is a very beautiful, precise art. And that's also reflected in the fact that I feel like you make specific choices about work that you're willing to do and, and that you're not willing to do. You're not there at 1.30 in the morning for somebody to wander in from the bar <laughs> next door and ask you for, for Daffy Duck on their arm. <laughs> and there are places that do that and more power to them. Yeah. You take bookings months in advance. I feel like you are very intentional about the work that you choose to participate mm. in. Mm. What has to be part of the equation mm. for you to want to get involved in somebody's process? Yeah, I, so like I said, I'm pretty drawn towards um, creating visual interpretations of literary passages. So mm. uh, White Whale obviously is named after uh, Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just that book, uh, when I studied it in my undergrad and read it again in my graduate work, just spoke um, so much to me about philosophy and lines and, uh, you know, it's some call it the great American novel for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always drawn towards um, taking those textual scenes and then creating that visual interpretation. Um, I think it also is just like back to that idea of this is the thing that I have now chosen to master. Um, so wherever I am in my my growth cycle of mastery, um, so I've been very drawn to um, woodcut artists, mm-hmm. uh, pointillism. You know, Seurat was one of my f- my favorite artists. Barry Moser, Gustave Doré, um, some of these incredible engravings that are just made up of perfect lines. Um, so I've been doing a ton of that kind of woodcut and pointillist approach, and it seems to have been really well received. Um, now, like I feel like I've um, kind of climaxed where I am with that, and I still enjoy doing that part of my work. But I'm being drawn towards, you know, I've always had a love for the pre-Raphaelites, uh, for mm. Baroque art. Um, so I'm being drawn more into that realm. So maybe that's a combination of, of things. I'm not sure, honestly, for this next round. So we'll see. But there's sort of a new door opening to what you're exposing yourself to and what you, what you want to take on. Yeah, I get pretty, pretty bored when I feel like I'm, um, when I've learned something and I've kind of plateaued there. So I find myself, as we speak, back into a p- place where I want to enter back into that beginner's mindset. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Trying to make some progress there. In that, going back to that internship process, what is what is the hardest thing to learn? What is the thing that when you start off, you know the phrase, you don't know what you don't know. Hmm. What is, I think about a, as a musician, I think about guitar players that I respect, that I know fundamentally think about the instrument in a different way than I do, that I can't hmm. conceive of the way hmm. they think about it. Looking back at yourself when you first started with the knowledge that you have now, what are the greatest obstacles and sort of what are those milestones that you realize you're developing mastery as a tattoo artist? Mm, that's a great question. I, I think um, just the technical aspect alone is pretty difficult. I, out of all of the mediums that I've dabbled in, tattooing is by far the most difficult. Mm. Um, so the technical aspect. But I think there's, a, there's definitely a mental game there you if you have any shadow of doubt in your mind then it's going to show up in each yeah. line so each line has to be has to come from a place of i think pure confidence mm-hmm. um so having to grow in that has been a, a big thing for me is that something you can train i mean is that st- you know it's like a surgeon's stillness of hand right is that right. something you can develop or is it something you have or you don't 
because I mean the work that you do for people that haven't seen it, go to the go to the distillerpodcast.com or and link from there, or go to whitewhaletattoo.com. But it's it's very fine, pointillist and single line type of work, mm-hmm. really lovely and precise. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, I mean, the type of thing that I wouldn't have thought was really possible mm-hmm. with tattooing before seeing a lot of your work. Sure. Is that something that you can learn that steadiness, or is it something that you have to figure out whether you have yeah. over time? I think so. I think you can. And I, again, I really value that about my apprenticeship was that mastery of lines. And that's something that's been very important for me as I pass the tradition on to my apprentices. Um, I think uh, we, what I've tried to do in our studio is to create a place that um, reflects some of the big paradigm shifts that have happened in my own life. Um, and I would say uh, that maybe the most important one is the shift from operating out of scarcity versus operating out of abundance. Mm -hmm. Um, I think on a similar level from operating out of fear into operating out of love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've been a part of so many um, professional jobs where it was fear and scarcity that was really trying to drive the production. Um, So this has been a big experiment for me. And honestly, it's uh, just kind of coming out of my own life um, where I wanted to try and live out of these new paradigms. You know, I, I have kids now, we have another one on the way. Mm-hmm. And so we're revisiting, like, what does it look like to believe in an abundant universe instead of one where there's not enough? Mm-hmm. Um, so in White Whale, there's, there's this real spirit of collaboration between all the artists. And truly, there is enough for all of us there. We, we're not fighting over the next tattoo appointment that comes in where we're giving each other work. And we're saying, actually, I think you would really do a good job with this piece because it's more of your style or your interest. Um, so there's this great spirit of collaboration and abundance that we really try to operate by when we're in like a, a team meeting. And anytime we ask the question, what if, we like to see where that goes. And that's a really good indicator of well, what if this means, you know, I'm going to get less work or what if this means it's going to, or like, what if this is the next best thing for us and mm-hmm. what are the amazing outcomes that can come from this? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, about starting the business because that's a whole other thing. You can learn to tattoo. You can be a master artist. That is a completely different skill set from starting and, mm-hmm. and running a business. How long had you been working as a tattoo artist before you essentially decided that this is something that you wanted to to run your own business to do as opposed to uh, going to work for mothers or, or, you know, or somebody else in town? Yeah. I, so I was in the the shop where I learned for about seven years. Um, and before I decided like white whale started becoming this thing. Um, and for me, I think, you know, I wanted... I'm a little OCD, so just to have a little more control over the space in sure. which I worked. Um, you know, a lot of tattoo studios can uh, have this kind of loud, mm-hmm. um, you know, heavy metal playing the whole time, which is, I like metal, you know, but uh, when I work, I prefer like opera or classical or Something like calming. really chill. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I think I really wanted to lean into this part of me that was pastoral, that like wanting to lead people through a ritual. So hmm. in in the private studio, folks would come in and feel safe ideally. And uh, and some would cry and just like tell you, it's almost like you, with your hairdresser, like often they become right. your, your, your therapist, pseudo-therapist. Yeah. yeah. So in some ways I feel like I need to go back and get a psychology <laughs> degree. <laughs> you got the, got the time. <laughs> it, when you first started it, what was the original vision? Was there a specific... You talked about some of the some of the more philosophical elements, but um, what kind of what came first, the space or the idea for the space? So um, the idea came first, um, and so much credit is due to my wife Becky, who really believed in this dream, and she pushed. So we had bought this home, uh, and we got a great deal on this pretty much a dream house. It was a foreclosure, so we got it for super cheap. And we knew we had all of this equity if someday we ever wanted to right. sell it. And one day she said, you know, we should we should sell the house and we should buy a studio with an apartment above it and you need to do this. I love it. It's time that you stop doing all these other jobs, you know, and you, you need to go for this. So 
Um, that was all her. And she, from day one, has, I mean, she's a 50% partner. Mm-hmm. And she brings just as much to the, to the, the business. So uh, in addition to so just all the booking and administrative stuff, she truly is just like an amazing people person, an extrovert, and the face of the business. So um, we have pretty excellent customer service, thanks to Becky just being on board. Right so. on. And then you started the business, and my sense is that fairly quickly... You had a name, you had recognition, you had a waiting list. Is that true? I mean, yeah, I had so I had built up a fairly decent clientele over the years. And uh, there was something that was really big, you know, these kind of these paradigm shifts of from like abundance, you know. Um, we were trying to apply. So uh, this still is not my default. You know, my default is still those old, you know, like, I don't know, religious ways and like kind of not. I don't want to use religion as a bad word because I'm certainly, I think, as spiritual as I've ever been. Um, but we, we, along with some friends, were reading some books about like the law of attraction. And mm-hmm. we were like, let's, you know, maybe this is like mumbo jumbo, but let's try it out and see what happens. So we were um, really becoming more intentional, I think, and, and watching these intentions manifest all around us. And so it was it was simply our our intention to have just like one of the best places to have this tattoo experience we and you know we just wanted people to have this amazing experience and uh so i remember one day we were like kind of um talking about how do we create like the best tattoo studio um around and we get an an email from uh, a publication that was doing their best of, and they hmm. said, hey, we want to feature you in this. And we'd only been open like two months. I didn't know if anyone <laughs> had even heard of us yet. So I was like, whoa, this is kind of wild, you know? So um, that I think is maybe a poor example of uh, many things that have happened because we've just like begun to believe in this weird thing mm. called like, you know, manifestation and attraction. So. Yeah, but if it's, if it's working, yeah, right. <laughs> don't don't knock it. Huh. So you started out, it was just the two of you. Now you have seven employees, co- uh, co-artists? Seven artists, yeah, and Becky, so eight of us in the crew. How do you, and uh, although the shop has a definite ethos, I wouldn't say, to my knowledge, that every one of the artists have, have they're not copycats of your style. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think they, they all have things that they do well and what's in their, their wheelhouse. How do you choose... Who to work with and who to hire for the shop? Yeah, so I mean, this truly is my baby. You know, I've mm-hmm. gone through so many jobs and found out a lot about what I don't want before we created this thing that we yeah. want. So we're very protective of it, and we hadn't um, recruited. There wasn't for me. I was happy to, for it to always be my personal studio if that's what it was meant to be. Um, but some really amazing people started showing up in our life and uh, who were extremely talented artists and had the integrity to match. So it was a very natural fit to kind of be in discussion and say, what, it, what does this look like? Uh, what does tattooing look like? Everyone at our studio uh, was a trained artist. Most of them had gone to Savannah College of Art and Design mm-hmm. or UC's DAP program. Um, so I had seen their art, I had seen their style and also like, they all have a particular style that I had not necessarily seen being tattooed either. Mm. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to, to give it a shot. And uh, yeah, every, so everyone at our shop has their own kind of, you know, realm that they work in. And so we're able to steer folks towards the right artist based on what they want to get done. Describe the process of how, if you want to get a tattoo at White Whale, how that works depending on who you choose to work with. So, um, all of us tend to open our books for proposals. So personally, uh, the first day of every um, season, so coming up this spring, um, my books will open for one day. And then people, there's kind of a template on our website that um, shares what we're looking for when you submit that proposal. So we have all the information we need. Um, And then I generally book about 30 to 40 slots per season. Um, for those proposals. So um, it's a really difficult job going through and sorting them into yes, maybe, and no. Mm. Um, so yeah. That's How many are you choosing from? How many requests for proposals do you typically usually get? Usually somewhere around 100, okay. I'd say, come in that day. Um, so yeah. 
And a lot of times that makes sense. Like one will come in that is clearly for Jacqueline or mm-hmm. Annie or Zach. So I, it's easy for them to steer them where they should be. And then it doesn't feel so bad because I hate saying no to yeah, so yeah. many great projects, you know. So it's kind of the nature of the game. Are there works that you have done? And maybe if the answer to this is yes, we can we can link to some of them. When you look back at the at the pieces that you have done, are there ones that stand out as just mm. sort of shining your mm. favorites or, or for whatever reason, the most memorable experiences of giving a tattoo that you remember? Uh, yeah, there's been so many. And some of them are honestly, uh, they surprise me because it becomes more about the person's narrative and what that means for their narrative. and some of the uh, conversations I've had with folks have just been pretty life-changing. So uh, from an artistic standpoint, um, again, I love, I love the woodcut style stuff and uh, I connected really well. Um, I met one of my best friends uh, through tattooing, uh, Mm -hmm. Corbin Bone, who was a member of this podcast. He was guest on what? I think episode 12, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So when he moved here to play soccer, he found us and came in and we hit it off immediately. And now I've I've done his entire back and and several other pieces. And that piece was, uh, the back piece was based off of a Doré woodcut and it's extremely intricate. And we have probably 25 hours worth of tattooing into his back. So that's been a fun piece to work on. Right on. And his wife now works at the shop. His wife works at at the shop. Was she working at the shop before they were married or was that... I don't know the timeline there. Not that it's important. She was not working at the shop. Um, She was a hairstylist at the time. And Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, Corbin was looking for a hairstylist. And I said, hey, you should meet meet this girl. And then the next thing I know, they're dating and married and now have a kid. So Let's talk a little bit about the work that is ongoing with La Limonada uh, in Guatemala. Because you said that's where this all started. Um, Talk a little bit about White Whale's continuing commitment. Um, Sure just whatever you want to cover there because I think it's amazing work. Mm. Yeah, Guatemala really still feels like a second home for me. Mm. Um, And the relationships we have there are ones that I hope to have for life and people, just beautiful people who are doing extremely difficult work. And uh, I have, my children are here um, and I have them half the time. So I'm, I'm committed to being in Cincinnati as they grow up. I wouldn't be surprised as when they're all grown up, we move back to Guatemala. Right and for now, it's like, let me get down there as much as I can and mm. just build these relationships. Um, so part of our, when we wrote our business plan, Becky and I committed to giving away 10% of our profits to uh, nonprofit organizations, um, a large amount of it going to Guatemala, <laughs> uh, and then some other going here locally into organizations like Sea Shepherds that we believe in. Um, but we are committed to financially backing and supporting how we can. And then we take our team down once, sometimes twice uh, a year to do this ongoing cover-up work. Uh, And through that, there's been a ton of new, beautiful initiatives that have launched um, with some of the folks that we've been tattooing down there. So it's really fun to get to see that um, just take off. And all we can do is just like appreciate it and be grateful and enjoy it. What kind of stuff? What's coming out of it? Give us some. Sure, yeah. So um, we began working with uh, a gentleman named Fito, and Fito uh, was one of the founding members of one of the largest gangs in Guatemala. Uh, Fito grew up in the garbage dump community. Um, A lot of people live in kind of small homes around the, the garbage dump, and they scavenge the trash to recycle or what they can to to make a living. Uh, so there's a high gang population in that community. And Fito has chosen now, he's, he's much older and has a family, but to remain in the community so that he can help keep young folks out of the gangs. So we work with Fito. We um, recently had a fundraiser. So uh, about once a year, we do a fundraiser at White Whale where we create these flash pages, like in the traditional sense of tattooing, where mm-hmm. you walk in and you, you pick a design yep. that's on display and you get it tattooed. Um, and all of that money goes to fund these trips or, or other initiatives. So Fito had this dream to 
take a bunch of people from the garbage um, community, zone three is what we call it in, in Guatemala, from zone three camping. And, you know, so to picture 50 people who have never left. And his, yeah. so what Fito said is like, they believe this is the whole world. And they've never seen a lake or a mountain. Right. So that was his dream. So all he wanted was just a couple grand to take some people camping. And we're like, let's do it. <laughs> so he recently oh. took took everyone camping. And we got great pictures of people like covered in mud from this mud pit. And uh, they sound like they had a lot of fun. So that's a, an awesome one. That's so great. You do the, the flash days. You do it once a year or you do it multiple Correct. times? Okay. Yeah. And when does that typically fall? For people that are listening to this thinking, I want to, I want to help support this work. Yeah. Um, we have done them, done them on Halloween. We've done them on All Saints Day. So we kind of like to play with the theme. Okay. Um, this year, uh, official announcement right here on The Distiller. There we go. We got a scoop. We're going to do uh, our flash day on Sunday, June 2nd, and it's going to be in collaboration with 21C. Oh, cool. So we were invited to do uh, the flash day in the ballroom at 21C. Nice. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to allow us to accommodate, I think, some more folks and raise some more money than we've ever raised. So cool, we're really cool. excited about that. If you're not familiar, 21C is a hotel here in Cincinnati. It's a, it's a boutique chain. I know there's one in Louisville. Uh, I think there's one in North Carolina as well, but mm-hmm. really, really beautiful places that I know you guys have a, a relationship with. So yeah. early June, watch the white whale tattoo on Instagram and all of that for the information. Absolutely. And 21C is very committed to our, every every hotel has an art gallery in it, and there's often art in the rooms and throughout the the premises, and they're very also dedicated to social justice and raising awareness. So we're really appreciative for the opportunity to collab with them. Right on. So as you look forward at the next phase of, uh, you know, the development of White Whale and the development of yourself as a tattoo artist, you talked about moving beyond some of the forms that have been most familiar to you, mm-hmm. uh, not, not letting go of those, but moving into maybe more of the pre-Raphaelite type of work. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about what your vision, your vision is for the future and some of the goals that you have for yourself yeah. As an artist, I mean, I think I would be interested to hear at this point in your career, you've been tattooing for 13, 14 years. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you trying to learn? Like what, it, mm-hmm. what in terms of um, artistic accomplishment and, and the style that you want to get into, but also at this point, what does it mean to continue to develop technical facility mm-hmm. for you? What are you wor- lor- working on these days? Um, so I was recently accepted to a workshop in Italy, uh, studying under a master classical painter named Roberto Ferri. And, uh, he's, I've been a longtime fan of his painting. If you, uh, know the work of like Caravaggio, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, equally as beautiful and amazing. And I'm really kind of just blown away by, by his work. Um, so I thought I'd give it a shot and apply for this workshop and I was accepted. So I'm really thrilled about that. Um, so for me, that's going to be, I think, a big practice in that classical style of painting. And I'm interested to see how it will to translate into my tattoo. I, I yep. tend to work largely in black and gray. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I will be incorporating a little bit more of that, you know, Renaissance palette into my tattoos eventually. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think there's this, you know, for me, I've always been really drawn to jazz for the reason that jazz has room for so many voices and it, it you know the blue note is there for suffering and it's uh kind of this like you feel that spirit and that riff and you have all kinds of room for experimentation um and i don't know as i maybe as i get older as i grow I'm, i've been drawn more to the classical into the opera and i notice a real difference when i'm painting or drawing if i'm listening to jazz Almost inevitably, you enter this state of flow. And with jazz, there's kind of like this fluid movement to the painting. And it's very much like I'm not exactly sure what's going to come out of it. Mm. Uh, when I listen to classical, if I'm listening to Brahms, the end result is much different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really playing with this idea of perfectionism as a one. Um, so, you know, I like them both for various reasons. But I think that's a, a bit of an untapped thing that I haven't spent enough time with. Interesting. How would you say, going back and saying, you know, your original, um, the, this podcast we say is about work. We've been talking about your work, but in terms of the intentionality of your conception of your work, yeah. looking back at when you thought your work 
would be in the church when you moved out of that in those periods of transition, the work that you do in Guatemala and now the work that you do both as an artist and as a, a leader of people, a pastor of sorts, a leader of your staff, but also of the way that you minister, if you will, to the people that you're tattooing. How has your conception of what your life's work is mm. changed and how do you think about that now? That's a lovely question. I, I think it's only been in the in recent years that I've even thought of this concept of life work. Um, for me, my life has felt like a pretty restless journey. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm a pastor and I'm an English person. Now I'm in Guatemala and now I'm tattooing. And uh, so, and it's felt like just a really honestly a restless journey, just trying to find that, I think blessing, you know, but mm -hmm. also um, that thing that sticks. And um, and I'm now in retrospect, I'm seeing how all of those things maybe weren't just by chance, mm. that they're all kind of coming together pretty beautifully. Um, so when I think about life work, I'm still not sure. I think I'm I'm nearing midlife now, so I'm starting to think more about like what this, what do I do with the rest of it, and what am I supposed to create, or maybe supposed is the wrong word, but um, what do I want? I think mm -hmm. it's the more important question to create. Um, I, I feel two draws. I feel like this this literary teaching wor world where, you know, I can write the things that I've experienced or the things that I've learned or what seem to be true to me or I could um, share them in a textual way. But maybe it's selfish. Maybe it's just like a heart desire. Um, I'm interested in trying to figure out how to portray those things visually mm -hmm. uh, using symbology and art. Um, to communicate something that someone might connect with and someone else might completely hate. But. You have teenagers. You have a little tiny one on the way. Yeah. We're in the same spot yeah. <laughs> in, in life about that. And, and congratulations. That's yeah. really exciting. Thank you. How do you think uh, through all of that journey, what are you teaching your kids about work? What do you mm -hmm. want them? You've been through a restless journey and you, now you have this sense of the restlessness of it. Yeah. Do you have a sense of sort of what you want them from that journey to get from you, how you want them to think about their approach to work? Yeah, that's great. Um, I think, you know, I've spent so much time uh, just being dutiful and doing things that I thought were, I need to keep this job because I need a steady income for my family, you know? Um, and being in places where I was pretty miserable because I thought that was best for the kids, and somewhere along the line, I think it occurred to me that um, what my kids would rather see is me truly alive doing what I want, mm -hmm. even if I was poor, yeah. um, maybe. So that's still, that's still <laughs> a theory. No, I know it's easier said <laughs> they than They may not. say differently. But, <laughs> um, but so far, I think, I think um, if you follow your passion, then like everything else follows. Yeah. So I don't know. They seem to... I don't know. It'd be interesting to interview them about what. Well, they that's think my about question. This. Do you yeah. think they're Do you think they're getting that? How old, how old is your oldest? Uh, seventeen. Naomi, okay. seventeen. Yeah. yeah, same same as me. Do you Do you think that she is soaking that up? Do you think that that lesson from watching you is coming through, or is it too early to say? I think so. I, um, you know, I don't want her. I want her to learn things at her own, you know, rate. But I really try to say that you truly can do whatever you want to do. And I, there's a lot of pressure to, and I can see her processing as she's now thinking about college. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the program that I should take that's going to ensure me the best opportunity to make money or to get a job and pay pay it all off? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, versus, like, what is it that is like my heart's desire? And you know. It, your heart's desire changes so much yeah. anyway as you as you grow. So, but um, we I think for the most part we try to help them say what is it that you're passionate about and and to keep put, just go after it. You know. Right on. Well, it's been really exciting to hear your story. Really interesting. Even though I've known you for years, to get a little bit of a deeper vision into how you're approaching it. And I really appreciate you uh, coming and spending the time. Of course. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, finish as we not necessarily began, but cheers. Really appreciate your, your time and your work. Thanks, Brandon. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Carrican Spirits, a craft spirits distillery and restaurant at 3717 John Lund Drive in Fairfax, Cincinnati. 
thanks to founder and soul Jeff Hunt and marketing assistant and dealer Jessica Rilling and the whole team at Carrican for taking such good care of us. You can see photos of our time at Carrican, including their amazing space and the gorgeous brass still on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. And do stop by Carrican, see and taste what Jeff and the team are doing and be sure to tell them you heard it on The Distiller when you do. Sincere thanks to Jeremiah Griswold of White Whale Tattoo for sharing his story. There's obviously so much more to the visual part of the White Whale story that doesn't come through on audio. Check out the photos and links on our website and see some of Jeremiah's beautiful work as well as that of the entire White Whale team. Also find links to White Whale's website and social media pages where you can check out the schedule and maybe get your very own piece of White Whale's amazing work. Find links, photos, and all that good stuff online at thedistillerpodcast.com. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan, and our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can listen and download every episode at thedistillerpodcast.com with links, photos of the guests, and a map of all of our show locations. If you like what we're doing, please follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you'd like to help support us in creating The Distiller, just go to thedistillerpodcast.com and click on the Become a Patron button for more information. And finally, we'd love it if you'd rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen and help us spread the word about the show. You can always email us at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com. Tell us who you think should be on The Distiller to talk about their search for meaningful work or where you think we should record the next show. Whether you do it by email, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson, and thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.